Thanks, Scott. Well, please turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. We are continuing our way through the book of Galatians, as uh, Kurt mentioned earlier. appreciate Kurt uh, leading us in worship this morning and uh, looking forward to um, just continuing to be able to, to worship with us, uh, with you next week. We're going to be back at five points. Uh, Mike, hopefully, will be back as well. They're enjoying uh, vacation this week and uh, hopefully having a good time as well. It's kind of fun to get to be able to be here at this location this Sunday. You know, this is the this is kind of the beginning of our building campaign kickoff, and it's been kind of a a uh, an interesting process to go through as a church to kind of think through what sort of questions do we need to ask, what sort of answers do we have to the questions that we need to ask as we think about where we are as a church and what God would have us do over the next few years and what we would have us think about. So we didn't we didn't plan to. Be, we didn't. We didn't. We weren't smart enough to think through. I mean, I wasn't smart enough to think through. Okay, we'll do the Sunday service here, and then we'll start our building campaign next week. But it's kind of providential that, that it worked out that way. And so we're going to be able to on Saturday, and then at care groups following, we're going to kind of be able to just lay out how all this process has gone. And I'm just uh, really encouraged at the answers that the building committee and elders and deacons and staff have, have kind of come to as we've thought about all the different issues that our church is facing and where we want to be and, okay, here's kind of the ministries we want to be doing and, and here's how a building could help with that. Now, how do we take all these ideas and bring them together? I, I just think that the plans that the building committee and our partners have come up with are, are fantastic. I was able to see some on Friday, kind of the latest draft, and I was just uh, just really encouraged and I'm looking forward to being able to to talk about that as, as a church. It's kind of nice to be at this phase, right? The, the planning phase is a little more stressful sometimes. This is kind of the fun phase where we're able to, to talk together a little bit more specifically about, okay, here's, here's what we're looking at and here's how we can get there. And so we'll see how the Lord continues to bless that. And as Ben mentioned, next weekend will be big, not just in terms of talking about the building, but a week from tonight we'll be back here and we'll be voting on kind of beginning some of the, the spending process. We'll be talking about our budget. And in fact, there, I think there's some drafts of the budget that are at the Welcome Center. I encourage you to, to check those out. And uh, we'll be affirming some people in ministry roles and membership. And so just a lot of, a lot of uh, encouraging things we'll be talking about next week as well. Well, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to read the text together. That that part's not different. That's what we always do, if you remember. Um, we're going to read the text together. We're going to pray, uh, again, what we always do. But normally, you know, I, I kind of start off a little story, and here's the main idea. But, but this morning, we're, gonna, we're just going to start. Okay, we're going to pray, and then we're just going to look at the first point, and we're going to then look at a, another statement that Paul makes. So Paul makes two statements. We're going to think about those things. And then Paul asks a question. We're going to look at the question. And then Paul gives kind of a potential answer to the question that he asks, a very concerning answer, and it's, it's in that answer, in that concern, that we find what I think is the, the main point of this paragraph, the main point of the text that we're looking at this morning, and kind of the main idea that I want you to walk away with this morning as well. So we're just going to look at Paul's two statements, statement one, statement two, just jump right in there, and then we're going to look at the question that Paul asks, and then we're going to look at the concerning answer that he has to that question and see kind of the, the main idea that I think we can walk away with this morning. So the, 
The main idea is at the end. Okay, so just it's like a big turnaround time travel thing this morning, and we're just going to kind of uh, just kind of a, a fresh way to kind of think about how we approach thinking through the text, keep things keep things fresh, right? And so now, though, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read His Word together, uh, Galatians chapter four, verses eight through eleven. And let's, uh, let's look here at what Paul says. He's just talked about adoption. And then in verse 8, he writes this. To those of us who are now adopted and, and his heirs. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. You may be seated. May God be encouraged through his word this morning. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask for your continued kindness on us. We recognize that you have been gracious to us in, in ways we could not have fathom in the past. You've brought us into relationship with you through faith in your son Jesus. You've revealed him to us and allowed us uh, to know you through him. And now we beseech your, your further grace. Please continue to be kind to us. Continue to reveal yourself to us. Continue to help us know you. We pray that you would open your word to us in your son's name. Amen. Well, here's the, the first statement I want us to think about from this text. And the first statement is this. You used to be enslaved to sin. You used to be enslaved to sin. Uh, Paul writes this in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And so the, the first point here, the first statement you used to be enslaved to sin. Now, there, there's a couple things, three things I want you to notice as we, we look at this verse. First, notice how Paul describes someone who's a believer. What, what phrase does he use to describe someone who's a believer? It's someone who what? Who knows God, right? So how does he describe a person who's been converted, a person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ? He says they're a person who, who knows God. He says, you, you've, you've come to know God. In fact, I think that's a really helpful way to, to think about conversion, to think about becoming a Christian. Remember when we were going through the book of Deuteronomy? We talked about how uh, God's expectation on the people of Israel was that, first of all, they would know God. They would know truths about who he was. They would know truths about how there's one God and he's the saving God. He's the God that brings them out of slavery, who delivers them so that they would know God. And then after they knew God, they would love him. And as they loved him, they would worship and obey him. And they'd walk in obedience and experience blessing. And so, so to know God means that a person is going to, to worship God and walk in obedience. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, let's listen to what he writes about knowing God and, and knowing truths about God. He says, our aim in studying the Godhead must be to know God himself better. Our concern must be to enlarge our acquaintance 
not simply with the doctrines of God's attributes, but with the living God whose attributes they are. In other words, our goal as we we come to know these truths about God is is not just to learn a bunch of facts, but to know the God that we're, we're learning the facts about. He goes on, As God is the subject of our study and our helper in it, so he must himself be the end of it. So, so as I learn these truths about God, I'm not just learning these, these doctrines that exist in some corner of my brain that kind of help me pull them out when I'm in a theological argument with someone. I'm, I'm learning these truths about God so that I can know who he is. The, the knowing here that he uses, the, the word that he uses here to we translate know is, is a word that implies relationship. If you were to ask me, you know, Daniel, do you know the President of the United States? I would say, well, I know. I, I know some things about him. I, I know, probably know more things about him than I know people that I actually have a relationship with. I know a lot of knowledge about him, but I, I don't have a relationship with the President of the United States. Or maybe you'd ask me, hey, uh, do you know uh, so-and-so? This, the, you know, you're a pastor. Do you know this famous pastor? Or, or do you know this, this pastor in the area who's pastored another church? I said, well, uh, I, I know them. I, I've met them. Maybe you've used this expression too. I know them, but they don't really know me. I, I know who they are. I know some things about them. We've you know, shook hands once or twice, uh, got into an argument, things like that. But, but they don't know me. That, that's not the type of knowledge that he's describing here. Here he's talking about a, a knowledge where there's, there's relationships. So I, I know truths about them, but it's in the context of, of relationships. So if you say, do you, do you know your best friend? Yeah, I, I know my best friend. And, and it's not just that we've met each other and spent time together. I, I know things about them. We, we know things ab- about one another, and we spend time together, and there's relationship. It's, it's knowledge in that sense. He says, you've come to know God. You've come to be in relationship with him. And as you look at Scripture, one of the fundamental problems with not being a believer is that you don't know God. You don't know how to live. You don't know how to rightly worship him. And so what do you do? You turn to self-worship. So the first thing I want you to notice, you used to be enslaved to sin. Notice first how he describes believers. They're they're those who who know God. I also want you to notice this in the verse. He says you were enslaved. He says you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God. So notice how he's describing their life before they were saved. They were those who were enslaved. Now, what is he talking about here? The people that Paul is writing to in this area of, of Galatia were people whose lives used to be dominated by, by worship to various deities. Some of them in this area would have been involved in, in worshiping the emperor. So there's, there's emperor worship that was taking place at this time. There was uh, worship to a, like this mother goddess in some of these regions that Paul is writing to. Some of them had lives that were dominated by worship of, ast- of astrology. You know what astrology is? Kind of the worship of, or the, or the belief that celestial bodies and the movement of these celestial bodies control life here on earth. Kind of that, that idea. In fact, I was, I was telling my son this past week, for those of you who are younger, um, there used to be these things called newspapers. And I know that you kind of have newspapers now, but, but they used to come every day and like they'd come to your house, and sometimes they'd be in a plastic bag if it was raining. And um, they were they weren't these just advertisements. They were they were these thick things, and you would open them up, and there were um, 
there was a page, and this is the page, that all, there were several pages of these that the, the, my brothers and sister and I, we always argued about it. They, were, they called them the funny pages, like the comics, okay? And um, I was trying to ex- describe to my son what comics were. I uh, said, so they're, they're like a bunch of memes in a row, kind of, in a, you know, they... And he, he was able to track with that a little bit. I said, and I, I grew up in the golden age of the comic. Uh, there was you know, Garfield and, and Ziggy and uh, Family Circus and an even better one, you know, Farside or uh, Calvin and Hobbes. And they've, they've, they've gone to the archives and seen some of those before, so they were able to track. But there's also, in that same section of the newspaper, what was there? There was a horoscope, right? So you'd, you'd read the funnies and then you'd read your... your your horoscope, you know, this is what you need to do, to the, do for the day. Avoid the color green, or uh, be sure to say thank you after every meal, or, you know, there's some sort of thing you need to do. And, and uh, I knew people in, in my life who, who took those things seriously, right? And, and here in this, in this context, the people in Galatia were those who lived their lives on the basis of what these false gods said. Some of them followed these uh, astrological religions in which they needed to do what people told them to do based upon the movement of these celestial bodies. It was, as the next verse is going to tell us, it was worthless. In fact, they also, uh, some of them worshipped Zeus, right? In, In Lystra, there was a temple to Zeus. And Acts 14 talks about Paul and Barnabas being there and and Paul healing this man who was lame and the the people see what had taken place and they said the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they call Zeus, Paul they call Hermes because he was the chief speaker and the priest of the temple comes and they want to offer sacrifices. And remember what Paul says? Paul says, no, no, guys, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you we bring you good news. We, we bring you the gospel. This, this news of deliverance. He says, we're bringing this good news that you should turn from these vain things, these worthless things, to a living God who, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Paul says, look, you used to worship gods. When you did not know God, you were enslaved. You were enslaved to these gods. Now, what does he mean by slavery? Throughout the book of Galatians, he talks about being in, in bondage and under slavery. What, what does Paul say when he's saying that they were enslaved to these gods? Really, he's describing an even deeper, more profound condition that these Galatian people were in. A reality for all of us who are not in Christ. He's talking about captivity and enslavement to sin. And Scripture describes this enslavement in various ways and, and, and talks about the captivity that we have in various arenas of, of life. So, for example, we know that society as, as a whole is, is captive to sin. Ephesians chapter 2 describes this, this enslavement. Says, Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You walked uh, following the course of this world. So, so, so like all the other people who are around you, 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 were, you were walking like the world. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul would say, don't walk like the Gentiles. Don't live like the Gentiles do 
in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous. And so he, he talks about the futile life that, that people who are in bondage in society live. So there's this, there's this sense in which the societies in which we live as human beings are enslaved to sin. We, we think wrongly about life. We think wrongly about God. And because of our ignorance, we're enslaved. I was just talking before the service began about some examples of that with some people. But not only are we enslaved as a society, there's, there's a spiritual, demonic component of this as well, right? Again, in that passage in Ephesians 2, Paul says, the, the reason that you're following the course of the world is, is like, the course, like those who are in the world, you are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, there's this demonic component. Ephesians 6, Paul will say that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So there's, there's a demonic component to the captivity in which we find ourselves. In Corinthians, uh, chap, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul would say that the gospel that he preaches is veiled, and it's veiled to those who are perishing. And in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of, un, of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God, right? So there's a, a, demonic, there's a demonic aspect to the, the captivity in which people find themselves. And what's more, there's a, a psychological, a, a fleshly component to our enslavement. Those who are not believers have to follow the, the desires of the flesh, Paul would say that our, our ultimate enslavement is, is to sin. Paul says in Romans 6.6, 6, uh, we know that we're brought by God so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So there's this, this personal component to our enslavement. We're enslaved to the, the desires of the flesh. In fact, I was, I was thinking about this. Um, what are some of the characteristics? You say, okay, Society, there's a, a captivity, there's a, a spiritual dimension to slavery. What does it look like for me personally to be enslaved to sin? I, I think there's a couple components of it, right? If I'm enslaved to sin, it means that I, I believe that I owe my allegiance to sin, right? There's a, an allegiance component of this. I, I recognize that it's, it's authoritative in my life. And so, for, for example, a person who's enslaved the sin of seeking the approval from others says, okay, I, I, I recognize that it's, it's a desire in my heart to have others approve me. And so there's a, this allegiance that I'm going to give to that to which I'm enslaved. Another characteristic of being enslaved to sin is that I believe that the pleasure of service to my master is greater than the pleasure I would receive from serving another master. So, for example, let's say that I'm enslaved to, to wealth, the, the sin of, 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 of greed. I believe that the pleasure that I find in serving the master of wealth is going to be greater than pleasure that I find in serving another master. Or, you might even put it more negatively. I believe that the pain of failing to serve the master that I'm serving 
is less than the pain I would feel if I served another master. So I recognize that this isn't a good thing, but, but the idea, I, so for example, with wealth again, I recognize that serving wealth, I recognize wealth as a master in my life, and I recognize this is not a pleasant thing. But when I imagine myself and I think, okay, maybe I could, maybe I could step away from wealth and stop, stop having it be my master, just the thought of that fills me with, with dread. I said, boy, I, I can't imagine not, not pursuing this, this master in my life. It, it fills me with, with dread, with the idea of, of pain, of displeasing this master. Another characteristic maybe of, of being enslaved is I, I suffer, and it's, these are related, of course, I, I suffer penalty of disobedience to that to which I'm enslaved when I don't obey it. Or I'm, I'm under its control. A person who's struggling with lust or pornography feels as though the, the problem is inescapable. I, I'm under its control. And then another characteristic is I don't see a way of escape. I'm, I'm sinful in my response, maybe to, ses- to stressful situations. And, you know, I'm in a stressful situation. I respond with anger. And just the idea of not responding in anger, I'm like, I, I don't think I can live that way. Or I'm in a stressful situation. When I'm in a stressful situation, I, I shut down emotionally. And, and I recognize, you know what, that's, that's a sinful response. I'm enslaved to this sin. But I can't imagine responding a different way. What does that reveal? It reveals I'm I'm enslaved potentially. As we think about these characteristics of enslavement, we say, okay, ultimately we recognize this, the slavery that Paul is describing here is a slavery to sin. And the root effect here is that there is an inability to live according to God's purpose, a failure to be able to glorify him in, in their lives. Now there's one other thing I want you to notice from this, this verse. So the first thing we notice is he describes salvation in terms of, of knowing God, being in relationship with God. Secondly, we see he's talking about enslavement here, and, and ultimately the enslavement is to, is to sin. The, the third thing I want you to notice is, is the tense that he uses. Notice the time frame he's talking about here. He says, formally, before you knew God. In other words, what he's saying here is, if, if you're a believer, this, this is describing you in the, the past tense. And some of you say, well, well, Daniel, boys, you're describing that relationship with sin. I, I, I would say that describes me presently. That's not something in the past. That's how I feel about my relationship with, with various forces in my life right now. I'm, I'm enslaved to the approval of others. I'm enslaved to legalism. I'm enslaved to a, a family relationship or some other type of relationship. I'm enslaved to pornography or alcoholism or, or power the, 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 or, or friendships. If that's true, what would you tell me? Well, that that brings us to the second statement Paul makes. You used to be enslaved, but number two, you're now redeemed. You're now redeemed. Even that word redeemed, the idea of being bought out of slavery, the the words that Scripture uses to describe our salvation are often these these words that relate back to slavery. You've been redeemed. You've been justified. That's a word that could be used to describe a slave who's no longer enslaved but has been fully freed. You're now from slave to adopted. You're brought into a family to complete reconciliation. 
It's, it's a contrast with the past. You're now in a different situation than you were before. There's this watershed moment. And then listen again to how he describes what's happened. He says, you've come to know God. Again, that's what we saw in verse 8. You're, you're redeemed. You're, you're brought into this relationship. It's not just intellectual, but relational. But then look at what else he says. It's, it's not that you've just come to know God. He says, even more importantly, what? He's come to know you. Paul is describing the, the sovereign, he's, he's hinting to the sovereign aspect of our salvation that God in his goodness chooses us to come into relationship with him. In Genesis 18, God says, he's talking about Abraham, he says, I've, I've, in the ESV translates it this way in verse 19 of Genesis 18, he says, I've chosen him, that's Abraham, that he may command his children. And really that word chosen is the word known. I've, I've known him, I've known Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. The idea here is that, that those whom God knows, he brings into relationship with him. He, he chooses to, to reveal himself to them and draw them to himself so they can know and love him. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, God says before, to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I, I knew you. I, I had, a re, I had this, this, this choice of you, and I, I knew you to, to bring you into relationship with me. Paul's point is that God is sovereign over this. Now, it doesn't negate the reality that we make decisions and, and God brings us to the point where we can. But, but God, Paul's point here is God's sovereign over our, our being brought into relationship with him. And so we're no longer enslaved, but, but now God has known us and redeemed us and brought us into his family as his children. Now, that is important truth to come to understand and believe that you have been bought by God and your enslavement to sin is past tense. John Stott wrote this about John Newton. He writes, Newton was an only child and lost his mother when he was seven years old. Newton went to sea at the tender age of 11 and later became involved in the words of one of his biographers in the unspeakable atrocities of the African slave trade. He, he plumbed the depths of human sin and degrada- degradation. When he was 23 on March 10, 1748, when his ship was in imminent peril of floundering in a terrific storm, he cried to God for mercy and he found it. He was truly converted, and he never forgot how God had had mercy upon him, a former blasphemer. He sought diligently to remember what he had previously been and what God had done for him. In order to imprint, on his, to imprint it on his memory, what God had done, he had written in bold letters and fastened across the wall over the mantelpiece of his study the words of Deuteronomy 15.15. This is what... Newton had, had uh, fastened above his wall. Thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondsman, a, a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. Newton wanted to re- remember that reality. Look, this is who you used to be, and this is what God has brought you out of. So you, you used to be enslaved to sin, but now you've been redeemed. Now you've been bought 
by God with the blood of his son Jesus Christ and have been washed, made new, and are now his child. And you say, okay, Daniel, I, I hear what you're saying. You say, but, but Daniel, let me, let me push back a little bit here, okay? You say that I'm a child of God. You say that I'm free. But here's the problem. I, I don't feel free for sure. I know you say, free from sin, I believe Jesus Christ paid the penalty for my sins, but, but when it comes to how I respond to my spouse, boy, I feel enslaved still. When it comes to being at, in the workplace, and whenever, the, whenever my employer begins to tell me the things that I need to do in order to advance, and I know that those are not the things that God would have me do. Maybe some things are unethical or maybe just the, the time that it's going to take away from my family. I do not feel like I have the ability to resist that. The, 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 the struggle there is, is so profound. I, I feel as though I think I am still enslaved. Or maybe you say, uh, you know, as I think about the issue of, of lust and, and pornography, I, I do not believe that I have the ability to resist that sin. And maybe even some sins in your life, you would say, I think, I'm, I think this is an addiction. I think I, you, maybe I use the word addiction to describe my relationship with sin. You say, Dana, what do you do with that? Well, let me, let me just kind of talk through a couple possibilities here. And, and, I, and I want to be gracious and also want to be biblical and, and clear here. A couple thoughts here. You know, for those of you who say, you know what, I think I'm addicted to a given sin, approval of others, wealth or lust, pornography. And let me just take that last one kind of as a, an illustration to think about enslavement and freedom and how God might have us think biblically. And then we'll expand it to application in other areas. Uh, there's an article that a, a woman several years ago wrote. Uh, her name is Morgan Bennett. And her article is entitled The New Narcotic. And, and she's talking about pornography. And this was her thesis statement. She says, new research, neurological research, has revealed that the effect of internet pornography on the human brain is just as potent, if not more so, than addictive chemical substances such as cocaine and heroin. In other words, viewing pornography can be more addictive than cocaine and heroin. And John Piper writes about this. He says, to make matters worse, there are 1.9 million cocaine users, 2 million heroin users in the United States, compared to 40 million regular users of online pornography. And she, you know, in the article, Bennett talks about the addictive, uh, kind of the science behind the addiction of, of pornography, uh, to, to use that word. But the, Piper pushes back and he says, he describes also how dangerous pornography is. And, uh, in fact, he, he, says, he says it this way, and I think it's a very helpful way to think about it. He says, think of the brain as a forest where trails are worn down by hikers who walk along the same path over and over again, day after day. The exposure to pornographic images creates similar neural pathways that over time become more and more well-paved as they are repeatedly travel with each exposure to pornography and those, those neurological pathways eventually become the trail in the brain's force by which sexual interactions are routed. 
therefore a person who uses pornography has unknowingly created a neurological circuit that makes his or her default perspective towards sexual matters ruled by the norms and expectations of pornography. And on and on, it gets worse and worse and worse. But, but Piper says, well, does that mean the situation is, is hopeless? No, because none of this, what? None of this takes God by surprise. When Jesus said, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart, in Matthew 5, 28, Jesus saw with crystal clarity the way a designer sees his invention the physical eye had profound effect on the spiritual heart. In other words, the situation is, is not hopeless. God has the last word. The Holy Spirit has the greatest power. We're not victims of our eyes and our brains. You say, yeah, but, but maybe, I, maybe, I, maybe it's beyond my control. And let me... So maybe I'm addicted, and by the word addicted, I mean that I, I have absolute inability to resist. You say, you know, I literally cannot resist, and let's just take the issue of pornography. Here's what Piper says, and I think he gives a, a great illustration here. He says, you know, addiction's a relative term, and this is Piper saying this, so if, if you think this is a, a mean, terrible thing to say, it's him, not me, just quoting. He says, I would, st-, Piper says, I would stake my life on the guess that In this room, no one is absolutely addicted to pornography or any sexual sin. And he gives this example. He says, you know, imagine if a member of of ISIS came into your room at night. You're about to click on this this pornographic website. Imagine a member of ISIS came in with your best friend or your spouse and said, if you click on that, I will slit their throat. In that moment, what would you, you have the ability to resist, right? So uh, the addiction is not absolute. You say, okay, fine, it's not absolute, but I, I'm for sure, I'm a believer, but I'm still enslaved. I know you're saying, I know you're saying I'm not, I know God's word's saying I'm not, but I, I certainly feel like I'm enslaved. And I say, well, I would say, well, absolutely, I understand that, and all of us feel the, the temptation to live as slaves. But here's the deal a believer does not possess something of, of greater value by which to, to turn away from their master. So the, the, the unbeliever says, okay, this is, this is a thing to which I'm enslaved, and the idea that I would escape this enslavement seems impossible to me. And, if I, and the idea of, of something better out there besides this, it, that, that doesn't compute. And the, the pain that I'm going to feel when I remove myself from this master seems too terrible for me to comprehend, be it pornography or do, be it wealth or greed or... Uh, laziness, whatever it is, that the idea of not serving this master seems too difficult for me to comprehend. I understand that for the unbeliever, right? But here's another, here's another illustration Piper gives. Imagine, again, same scenario. You're about to click on a website that you know would not honor God, and someone comes into that room, you know, Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or whoever with a big satchel full of money, a million dollars in this bag, and says, hey, if you don't do that, I'll give you this bag. Will you have the ability to say, you know what, that seems better right now to do that than this? Of course you would. Well, what does the believer have? The unbeliever doesn't have this, but the believer at every moment of, of our lives, at every, every moment of our existence, we have something of greater value than whatever it is we are tempted to be enslaved to. 
And God in his grace has revealed himself to us, has shown us the beauty of his son, and we have the ability to say, you know what, not this, but him. Not this website, but the, 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 the Lord who has bought me with his own blood. Not this, not this attitude, but Jesus. Not this wealth, but Jesus. Not whatever it is that I'm tempted to be enslaved to, but Jesus. I have something of greater value. I have Christ. It's true for the issue of lust. It's true for all sorts of other areas. You don't have to be enslaved to the approval of others because you have something better. Christ, you don't have to be enslaved to wealth because you have something better. Christ, you don't have to be enslaved to legalism because you have something better. You have Christ. So here's Paul's question. So, used to be enslaved, now you've been redeemed, So here's Paul's question. He asks, why? If you're known by God, if you've come into relationship with him, why, why in the world would you enslave yourselves again to sin? If you've come to know God, he says, if you've come to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you you? you want to be once more. So remember, who were the Galatians? The Galatians were people who worshipped idols. They were people who worshipped Zeus. They worshipped Mother Goddess. They worshipped the stars in the heavens. They worshipped the emperor. They, they were engaged in all these things that they were worshipping. And Paul says, why, if you've been freed from that, that worthless life, that useless life, that life that had no ability to bring you joy, why in the world would you ever go back to that? And if you're a Galatian, you're saying, well, Wait, what are you talking about? I'm not going to start worshiping the emperor again. I'm not going to, I'm not going to start following astrology. I'm not, I'm not doing that. Now, here's the shocking thing. The next verse is the, is the shocker. Because what Paul is saying, he says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. What is he describing there? He's describing the, the Jewish calendar. And the people who'd come to Galatia had said, these, these Judaizers, they had said, hey guys, I know you believed in Jesus. Now you need to also start following these, these Jewish laws and traditions. You need, guys, you need to get circumcised. You need to begin to eat right. You need to not associate with these things. You need, these are the things you need to do if you really want to walk in obedience to God. And here's the shocking, this is the thing that would have, even Jewish Christians, when they heard Paul say this, would have been, whoa, whoa, Paul, what are you saying? Paul is saying, look, for you, Galatian Christian, for you to start following the Jewish law is just like you're going back to pagan worship. Because it is just as ineffective in terms of sanctification. It is just as ineffective in terms of growing in your walk with God as following an astrology chart. I don't know if they had astrology charts, but worshiping the emperor. It's just as ineffective in terms of coming and walking in obedience to God. It's, it's completely insanity. Why would you ever do that? And so that's the question for us. If you have Jesus Christ, why would you ever turn to anyone or anything else to deal with sin? The key to combating your sin is is not to pile up more rules and more regulations. The the key to dealing with your sin is not to to follow some sort of six-step or eight-step or two-step or whatever. The the, the key to dealing with your sin and other things can be be helpful in, in subjection to this, but 
The key to dealing with sin is to see the value and the beauty of Jesus and to, to know God and be known by God as his child through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Paul says, asceticism, the sacramental system, legalism, moralism, none of those things are going to be effective in dealing with your sin. In fact, Colossians 3, he puts it very beautifully. Well, let me, you know what, let me start at the end of Colossians 2. At the end of Colossians 2, Paul is writing to the people in Colossae, and he says, if, you, if with Christ you've died to the elemental spirits of the world, so he refers again to those, those things that they've turned away from, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations like, don't handle this, don't taste this, don't touch that? Those are all things that are going to perish according to human precepts and teachings. He says the, these rules have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but these rules are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the the flesh. These can do nothing in terms of really dealing with your sin, the the hard issue behind your sin. And so then he comes into chapter 3, and and this is a, a passage that I'd encourage you to meditate on and memorize. It's a passage my family is memorizing together. He says, if then you've been raised with Christ, if this is the reality of who you are, then, then live like it. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. All those things you're to, you're to put to death, you're to put on Christ. You say, Daniel, I, I, I feel enslaved to sin. And I say, I, I share that feeling. I concur with you, and I agree that that is emotionally sometimes how we feel. But here's the beauty of the gospel. It tells me that I'm not. It tells me that I'm not enslaved to sin. And it tells me that those people who, who celebrate unbelievers, who, who celebrate the sin in which they live, are actually further enslaving themselves. What they think is freedom is actual enslavement, brings us to the last point for us to think about, last thing for us to see here. And here we find that the main idea, to turn away from Christ as your all-sufficient source of joy and hope is to turn away from the gospel and return to slavery. To turn away from Christ, to, to, to have received Christ and to have seen his value and his beauty and then to turn away from that as my all-sufficient source of joy and the ultimate source of my hope, to, to do that, to make that decision, to turn away from Christ is to actually turn away from the gospel and to turn back to slavery. Paul says, I'm, I'm afraid, as I think about where you're at, I'm, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. As I think about how you have heard about Jesus and seen his value and beauty and placed your faith in him as the Messiah, and now you're thinking about turning to something else, I'm worried that all the things that I did were in vain. And the same is true for us. To turn away from Jesus Christ is my all-sufficient source of joy and hope. To say, okay, my my hope is, is no longer only in Christ, now it's in Christ and doing whatever, 
or I no longer believe Christ is sufficient to deal with my sin, no longer do I believe that contemplating the beauty of Christ will help me deal with this relationship, or no longer do I believe contemplating the beauty and the value of Christ will help me in my struggle with greed or covetousness or all those things, to to turn away from Christ as my all-sufficient source of joy and hope, to believe that I need anything in addition to Christ, is for me to turn away from the gospel and return to slavery, to a vain and worthless life. I believe that Paul is writing these words with hope. I believe, he says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain with a confidence that those who have received the gospel, his labors will not be in vain. In other words, he's not describing a condition where people are going to lose their salvation, but he believes, and you see this as he goes through the rest of the, the epistle, there's much more optimism. He, he believes that these hard words that he's speaking to the people will help them come to their senses and say, boy, this is, this is foolishness, turning away from Jesus Christ as my all-sufficient source of joy and hope would be to turn away from the gospel. It would cause me to turn again to slavery. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he is all that we need. Father, this morning as we've been talking, we we pray that as you've, you've brought to mind various sins with which we've struggled, we pray that we would put those things in the balance against your son, Jesus, and, and realize that all of those those things come up wanting, that the masters to which we've submit our, submitted ourselves are, are vain and worthless masters, that the, the, the slavery that we are choosing to put ourselves under is, is, is foolishness and folly, not a slavery in which we must engage and help us to encounter the beauty of your son Jesus in these words and submit our lives to him in all things. We pray this in his name. Amen.